Welcome, friends, to the Sage Equay Radio Hour, your home for free and critical thinking, and I'm your host, Mike Williams. Jack Hart returns for another fascinating discussion. Jack just recently published his first book, Those Who Would Arouse Leviathan. The book is available on Amazon in both hard copy and Kindle. The conversation with Jack was wide-ranging as we not only discuss his book, but also the events taking place around the world. As a side note, we did encounter technical issues with the audio, which resulted in us having to reconnect four times in order to complete the interview. It did raise an eyebrow considering Jack's research. And so without further ado, here's Jack Hart. Well, friends, I've got a great show planned, and uh, Jack Hart is back with us. And uh, Jack, actually, that's an alias. His real first name is George, and uh, so we're going to go by George for this show. And he has a new book out, and the book is called Those Who Would Arouse Leviathan. It's a great read. I have it. You can get it on Amazon as long as they hadn't banned it. Oh, I'm having all kinds of problems with them. Go ahead. I saw the uh, the post you had on Patreon. Oh, they're telling people it's not available. They're telling them there's only two left. All over the world, people keep writing me. This is the reality that we live in, George. This is it. I got pictures, too, Mike. Like, if I hired a lawyer, I think I could sue for breach of contract. I got pictures of the site showing it unavailable in Germany, in Australia, and in Japan. People are sending me the pictures. They're taking screenshots of this shit. And it's, it's going on. It's going on. They probably cut my sales in half, but I'm, we're still going very nicely. Everybody's buying paperbacks, so the paperbacks take a while to get added up. They don't ship for two or three days sometimes, and they don't count them on the thing until they're shipped on, on the account. Well, paperbacks or hardcover books are always better anyway because the digital stuff, they can go in at some point and just change stuff. I look at, like, every paperback I sell as a, a blow against the empire, really. Once something is out there in paperback, they lose control. People have no idea the, the control they exercise over the internet. I mean, I've been subjected to it for the last day. You saw you now yeah. with, the, with your YouTube channels. I, they can change your wording. They've done it to me. They can uh, do something called sandboxing, okay? You can see your post. Your friends can see your post. But somewhere else, nobody can see this post. I quoted this so many times with different posts I've done. There'll be like a few thousand people that can see it. Nobody else can see it. Now, people write me. There's nothing up there. But it's up there to me. If I look on the Internet, it's up there. It's called sandboxing. I was told this by my friends in Germany. And they've been able to do it for years. They have been doing it for years. You control the audience that you get to. That's one of the things they use. The Internet is totally weaponized at this point. It's a weapon. And, they, and you can see the effects it's having on people. Just look around you. Well, one of the proofs is that those that do what I believe to be genuine work, they have the hardest time breaking through. Like George Orwell said, the, uh, the biggest crime against empire is common sense. Right. And anybody who's exercising common sense, like yourself, they become a target. Like somebody told me eight years ago when I got into this, there is no reality. We make reality. I mean, this is a hologram. Reality takes place in our consciousness in this malleable. But the people that are exercising common sense, they don't want any common sense anymore. They want blind obedience, and uh, it's a transhuman takeover. And they're attempting to, to make everybody into automatons. And the big problem with that, besides taking away the free will of man and everything we live for, is that, like I just said, this is a hologram, it's a projection. The way 
waveform does not then thus proved by Hewlett uh, III, John von Neumann, uh, Heisenberg, and a host of other famous uh, uh, scientists. It only bends in the consciousness, okay? Now, it's our consciousness that creates this reality. Our brain is like, it's like a machine that picks these waves up, and it makes this reality. It generates it. Now, if you substitute and turn us into machines, what they do is they calculate. They're not going to be able to uphold this reality that we're living in. They don't generate anything. They're a machine. They're an object, like George Berkeley said. They're not, they're not spirit. They have no consciousness. Right. This is going to end. It's like a death wish for the human race. It's going to end in disaster. This is my big enemy, is transhumanism. And uh, the forces of uh, the European Union and the rest of them, with the other guy coming out saying, oh, we got to go to a transhuman reset. They're trying very hard. And uh, anybody who's listening, my recommendation to you is you, you shoot it out with them before you let them stick you with that vaccine. There's something very, very wrong with that vaccine. That, uh, yep. We can talk about World War Two. We can talk about IC4 and the warp from the war and reconstituted themselves as dozens of uh, pharmaceutical companies. There's one in particular, Eldridge, which if you want to make a vaccine or participate in the COVID pandemic, you have to order these supplies from them. We wrote about them. I think it was in Wilkie's uh, Advantage Part 2 or 3. It's not that they're making the vaccine. They're making everything that goes into it, including the nanoparticles, by the way, which those vaccines are going with. Uh, they're making all the ingredients for this vaccine. This is a plan. But what you're dealing, you're dealing with the Bowman faction of the Nazis that fled World War II, they drew the war, and, and they fled with, with the greatest treasure and fortune, uh, including scientific advancements that we don't even dream about. And they dispersed all over the world, and they created an invisible empire. And these pharmaceutical companies, IG Farben was never really dissolved like it was supposed to be. It reconstituted itself as dozens of little pharmaceutical companies. Not little, they're massive now, but uh, that's what it became. This is the, this is the end result of, of, of giving them the kind of control they have. They're not going to force everybody to take this vaccine. Go to Sigma Algis' website, and you can look up all the ingredients they need for these vaccines because they got to order them from Sigma Alfreds. And Sigma Alfreds is advertising now that they don't just ship in parcels. They ship whole truckloads. They ship in tons. It's on their website. This is a bonanza for, for IG Farben, alias whatever you want to call them now, Pfizer, whatever companies they disguise themselves as. I document some of it in the Borman faction part one. We'll be documenting more of it. Well, you know, the other thing, too, George, is that if you just go to Moderna's site, it's M-O-D-E-R-N-A, R-N-A. So if you go to their website, it explains how RNA can reconfigure DNA to create certain proteins. So the point I'm trying to make, folks, and I'll put a link down below, is that they are telling us that they are involved in transhumanism. They have been telling us this for a very long time. These neural networks is what they're doing, and they mix seamlessly. You can go to Lieber's website. They have the pictures with your scanning electron microscopes of how they, they mingle in with your regular neurons. They, they form their own networks, and now, now you're a robot. 
you know, we, we've done research on 5G. It doesn't cause COVID, like a lot of idiots are saying and stuff like that. But what 5G can be used for is a communication network that will fuse this neural network together in your body. And that's what I suspect the big push from 5G is. China is just as bad. They got you. We got Google. They got you. And they're pursuing the same path. Yeah. Soon, soon we're going to have no humans left. Uh, and, and that's when this, this whole thing is just going to fade out. And you think the Mandela effect is bad. I, frankly, I think I believe they wake up in the morning and they have to read the newspaper to find out what they did the day before. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've had short circuits with some of them, Pelosi, uh, we had her uh, a month or two ago, so just all of a sudden phasing out and saying, good morning, Sunday morning, like a robot. Uh, same thing happened to Ron Paul, too. The, the other guy, Schumer, talking to an invisible person in the seat in Congress. All this is on the Internet. Go look at it. They, they, they're phasing out, man. They have to read the newspaper in the morning to find out what they did the day before. Example, just look at the Capitol. Oh, somebody said they planned that. They made the patriots look bad. No, you made America look bad in front of the whole world. We're a clown show now. There's a guy in a buffalo hat. And he's sitting in the middle of the White House. This was the plan of this demented six-year-old. Because who you discredited mostly was yourself. You know, most of the fat Trumpsters and the Antifa little faggots, they can't climb a wall like that. Those guys look like they probably had military training. Well, that's what I had said in my video. I had said that uh, these agent provocateurs are usually sourced from law enforcement and from the military. Or they're private contractors with military backgrounds. Yeah, backgrounds. Right. That, that's what's ridiculous to argue about. Or was it Antifa or was it the Trumpsters? It was neither. It was neither. This is what's called an agent provocateur. We've had that word around for 200 years. Go look it up in the dictionary. Find out what it means. They are agents provocateur. That is what they do. They list it. They list it on their, on their resumes. Right. Right. And what people don't understand, the reason why they get into that ridiculous debate, it's the left versus the right, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats and all this stuff, is because they cannot comprehend that the hierarchy goes way above that, that you're actually watching the clown show in front of the curtain, you know, and they never look behind the curtain into the control room. And reality TV stars not really running the country. They want to believe it is. I read something this morning, you know, that it, it's nonstop. The Trump munchers are out there saying, you know, that there's going to be indictments and there's going to be mass arrests. They're still going down that whole Q anonymous bullshit, you know? I know, I know, I read. Oh, yeah. The special forces told, they took 11 computers while all this was going on, and there's going to be indictments. Yes, yes. Nancy Pelosi had uh, child trafficking content on her hard drive. I wrote back to one person who wrote me this. I said, what happened to... Uh, to Hillary Clinton's 33,000 emails, and what happened to uh, Biden's son, Hunter Biden's laptop? What happened to that? I mean, shouldn't we get to those first since they were first in the queue? Nothing ever happens. That's the thing. People fall for this bullshit all the time. 30 years ago, I got to say, 20 years ago, people would not have fell for this stuff. Before 9-1-1 in the 90s and stuff, you couldn't have, you couldn't have got this over. Even when Waco happened, half the country was appalled. You know, uh, it, it didn't go over. They didn't go over like heroes when they killed all those people at Waco. Half this country was appalled by it. Right. Now, uh, it's whatever they do is okay. It's okay. Well, I, I tell you, George, people, 99.99% of them are completely gone. I hope it's not that high. I think we have about 
ten percent that are still sentient. I'm holding that, Michael. Well, I think it's a so high I number. Need sell, but... I need to sell. I need to sell a couple hundred th- copies of my book. So it's got to be about ten percent. We we need that number higher. We need book sales. Well, you no, know what? I make one for the other ninety percent because I'll just go buy sixty-four crayon crayons and uh, you know I'll make them a nice book. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you could do. You could do a coloring book version of the book. <laughs> a coloring book version of a fist fight between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. How's oh, that? God. <laughs> I'm telling you. So if we go back to January 6th, you know, I, I, I did the video that you know that YouTube yanked down in less than an hour. That is, I think it's the best thing you ever did. I loved it. I loved it. I only watched it twice. I watched the whole thing. And even I ended up with the COVID, uh, you know, it's all, it's all interconnected. It is interconnected. It's all together very nicely. I, 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 you know. That was the longest one you ever just did yourself, too. You should do more of those. Was it like 40 minutes? Yeah, it was about 40 minutes. And I was pretty bent out of shape when I, I did it because I'm sitting there and I'm I'm watching this whole thing. And I'm and then I'm watching the reaction, you know, by people, you know, the, the guy in the street, the lady in the street. And I'm like, how come you can't see this? How come you cannot see that this is a staged event? It's just a soap opera, for Christ's sake. You can't see that there's a director yelling, cut, cut, and in the background, and there's, there's probably lighting. And what, 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 you know there's smoke machines, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was smoke machines. They got the, the technicians from the old Deep Purple concerts, you know? These <laughs> <laughs> guys have been on the place since the 70s. They were happy. To, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, were happy they got work. work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's unbelievable. You know, look, let me just explain this real quick to the audience, right? So think about how this whole thing was set up. So Trump says, hey, you know, I'm going to have a rally and uh, it's going to be on January 6th. It's going to be in front of the Capitol on the day that they're going to do the whole electoral vote bit, right? So thousands and thousands of people are going to show up. So he calls this thing. And in the meantime, the Capitol is completely unprotected, aside from what they say is they claim a thousand uh, D.C. police or something to that effect. I, yeah, I, yeah. I seriously... Those probably yeah. weren't even the real cops. Those were probably crisis actors. They probably told the real cops to stay home and shut their mouths for their, their jobs. That's that's probably what happened, but I, I, you know, I'm speculating. But I would imagine that difficult for a real law enforcement guy to sit there and watch that. The whole thing was staged. Like we said, agent provocateurs. And let me just explain this, folks. There is no way that capital would have been left unprotected the way it was. The stuff they have now, like your show. Yeah, microwaves. Yeah, with the microwave machine. They have stuff like that. You know, you never got near that building if you, they didn't want you there. No, absolutely not. And in fact, they wouldn't even have allowed the rally to be held there. Right. Right? That's the whole thing. So what happened, folks, was, if you didn't watch my video, is the Trumpster... He was front and center with this thing. He is the person who brought all those people there so that the agent provocateurs could open the gates because that's what they did. He set them up. He set up the people that love him so much. He set you all up. Right. You got clowned. He stuck you in the back. The guy has no conscience. He has no empathy for other human beings, and particularly for the ones that really like him. These people sit there and chant, I love you, 30,000 of them at a time. Don't affect him. You don't care. You get so to say, he probably laughs at them. And, and the thing is, though, George, there are people that still love him even after they got punked. I know. 
and and they can't see it. This is the most frustrating thing. You know, you're, you're pointing it out. We talked about the alleged tear gas. Look, if that were tear gas, folks, nobody would have been standing around taking video, taking photographs, waving flags. If they were, they wouldn't be using tear gas anymore. They would they go to the scrap heap and they pick you something else. Because <laughs> the very idea of tear gas is they light it off and you run like hell. Years ago, when I was, you know, back in the Air Force Reserves, we had to go through uh, chemical warfare training. So there was an afternoon when, you know, we were out in the middle of a field somewhere, and there's a, a shed that they had that they used, which they filled with filled with tear gas. And you had to put the, the mask on, the gas mask on, and you had to make sure, folks, that you had that mask on tight and on properly, because if you didn't, I mean, it, it was going to be a nasty scene as you were making your way out of that shed. The way the shed is set up is they've got a door you enter into and a, a door that you leave. That's it. There's no windows. And they fill it with gas. So if you didn't have that mask on right, when you left that building, uh, you were in bad shape, really bad shape. So this whole thing that they were showing on television, I don't know, right away, I was, I knew immediately. I said, this whole thing is just, it's a setup. I don't know why they can't see it. That, uh, well, I do, but uh, it's, it's, it's too unspeakably horrible to even talk about here. I mean, I've written about it. I've written about it at the Tukey Memorial Post. This goes back to research they did. Oh, by the way, the same company that, that uh, Sigma Eldridge, uh they were carrying for a long time. They were carrying the Citrovirogen, which was the, is the, the uh, neurotoxin that causes Bilirubin disease, which the Germans brought back from the Antarctica. They've been experimenting with stuff like this since before even World War II, but they reached the pinnacle of it with uh, post World War II when they went into MK Ultra and all the rest. Like I was saying to you, you know, it was originally called Artichoke. Now looking around us, you can see why it was called Artichoke. I always wondered, well, we're surrounded by Artichokes, you know? <laughs> we are uh, talking Artichokes. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, it's, uh, I used to think, years ago that there was an awakening. I know, I know, I know. I used to get on your case about that, too, because I thought you were being overly optimistic. I was being overly optimistic, and then when I came... know, Michael. <laughs> 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 I admit it. And and then, you know, when this uh, when CV hit back in, in March of last year, and it was basically uh, a litmus test to see who was awake and who wasn't, and, you know, all of these people walking around with their faces wrapped, that was that. That that right, right there told me that we've got a big problem. Yeah, you might have to put out the COVID parts then because we're not allowed to say that COVID is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe what I'll do is I'll put this show on uh, on BitChute and I'll put a trailer on YouTube so that uh, we could do it that way. So we could say whatever we want to say. You know what? Putting things on YouTube now, it's a discredit to us. It infringes on your credibility because if YouTube can actually put it up, there's something wrong there. And let me tell you, if there's 100,000 hits or more on YouTube, it's either nonsense or it's total lies. I mean, I'm a researcher. I go to famous people like Paharich, Andreas Paharich, who was the Kaiser Sources of MK Ultra. Carl Friedman, who was the founder of the Hallenotic Brain Theory. David Bohm, Holographic Paradigm. I go listen to their tapes, and they got like 20,000 hits. And then I go listen to some crackpot, 
and they got 200,000, 300,000 hits. That's the way YouTube operates. Well, let me let me give you an example of, of something like that. I, I know a person that uh, was that is in the quote unquote truth community, whatever that means these days. And uh, you know, they had a channel that had about six thousand views. Then what they did was they jumped on the Q train, and they went from six thousand to almost a hundred and thirty thousand subscribers. There you go. Within several months, so it's good business. Number one. And number two, whenever you see something like that, folks, you have got to be very, very leery. Your radar has to go up. You got to stay on bitch you because you're able to get gems like, like the one you cut the other day. Those are gems. I am trying to develop other platforms like, you know, BitChute, and I have my material on Mixcloud and on uh, BNT and, and other platforms, but I still have to put my or try to put my content on platforms like YouTube in order to reach a higher number of people because they won't break their routine and go over to BitChute as an example. I mean, some people do, but the vast majority of them are just stuck on YouTube. And, and that's what happens. So that's when people ask me, well, why are you still using YouTube? You know, I, I, well, I would prefer not to use YouTube, but the reason why I've got to be there is because I still have the vast majority of my audience there even though I am trying to develop these other platforms. I'm probably guilty of the same thing. But I, I don't look for anything that's going to be informative. We recently put up something by Leon DeGrill. He was, uh, he was an SS soldier. He was actually a general. And uh, he was a Frenchman. He was Belgian. And uh, he managed to escape World War II in his life. He flew a plane wounded all the way into Spain, crash-landed. And we're pretty much happily ever after. And he, he said, I had a lot of stuff to say after the war. They hate him, man. He wrote a book, too, about the SS and how badly they can vilify. A, a lot of the stuff that was blamed on the SS was actually uh, the German army. And uh, the guy, Halver, that won the German army in Russia until like 42, late 42, he's the one that gave the orders to shoot whole villages, kill Jews on site, kill commissars on site. All, all that came from him. And because he drew the war, he helped him draw the war, he became quite the celebrity after the war, General Howard. Hitler fired him at the end of 42 when it became apparent that he was single-handedly losing the war in Russia by himself. After the war, he became the go-to guy for historian, British and American historians. He planned everything on the SS that he was doing. Uh, the SS was a multinational force uh, that was consistent of some 300,000 Germans, 300,000 Nordic uh, and the rest were uh, Europeans, like Mediterranean Europeans. They were French. They were German. They were Italian. They were uh, they, there were sixty thousand Muslims in the SS. They had their own imams. Uh, what they wanted was a united Europe, and uh, and they wanted an end to the international monetary system. And they were, most of all they were fighting against the Bolshevik menace, which was encroaching on the uh, on the east, on the west, from the east. Their politics. If you you read about what they were saying and stuff. Huh? They were probably the best thing they ever had. I mean, half those guys died in combat. They, they, they ended up being the fiercest combat unit ever assembled since the Spartans. Their ethics and, and, and why they fought. Uh, anybody, I recommend listening to Leon DeGrill, because uh, he was one of those decorated heroes in World War II, and uh, he, he had a lot to say about it afterwards. From the safety of Spain, they, they actually... Uh, 
they, they grabbed, he had seven kids, they grabbed every one of them and put them in orphanages, which uh, I, I guess they was helped by, uh, you know, the, the Rowan or whatever, but he recovered all seven of them and brought them to Spain. But they were dispersed in orphanages. His parents and his wife were starved to death in the concentration camp. This was after the war. This was in Eisenhower's time, the concentration camps. The Rhine Meadow camps? Huh? Eisenhower ran the Rhine Meadow camps, which were which yeah, were unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Ten million Germans after the war, and we keep hearing this mythical six million from the Jewish collaborators of the Bormann faction, you know, because that's what they are. I wish Jews would wake up, you know. I, I spend a lot of time criticizing Christians because I was raised a Christian, but I could say a lot about Jews and how stupid they are, too, for listening to their rabbis and stuff. They periodically use this cat and father. For these people like uh, Sheldon Adelson and, and George Soros and all the rest of them that are billionaires, they collaborated with the Bormann faction, man. George Soros, you know, was working for the Nazis. And it wasn't the good Nazis either, because they were good Nazis and they were bad Nazis. Unfortunately, the bad Nazis took over the world after World War II, along with our own oligarchy, the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon oligarchy, who they, they all conspired against today. There's something called the kodavi Kajiri plan. Most people have never heard of it. It came out in 1923. They knew people. They knew the world was going to be a socialist or national socialist. So they liked national socialism, but they didn't like the equality among the, uh, you know, among the peoples. They didn't want the aristocracy to be down there with the rabble. So they, they came up with this thing called the Kodavi Kalgiri plan. This guy was an aristocrat, Kalgiri. He was half Japanese, half Austrian. But he wrote a book called Paneuropia which they all endorsed immediately, all the major celebrities and stuff. Uh, he was backed by uh, the, the Habsburgs, the, the Rothschild money, uh, Warburg money. He was brought over to, uh, uh, to America and introduced to all, all the major finances. And they conspired to draw the fucking war, which they did. If you read about it, I think there's a book by Tito about what they did on the Eastern Front. I mean, they had their own countrymen slaughtered. By, by, by the millions, by the millions. And they didn't care. They didn't care. Because they knew they were cutting out at the end of the war. And that's exactly what they did. All these people walked away. They walked away with things like the Glock. Who even knows what the hell the Glock really did? You're talking about the uh, the, the Bell, right? The Bell. The crash yeah. of the Kecksburg in the 50s. It's funny, you know, David Lynch showed us the Bell. They Lynch kept showing it. Nobody seemed to notice that he kept showing the bell. Yeah. He even showed it with the crash at the Benson stuff and acquired a catchboat, the catchboat crash. Well, that was in uh, Twin Peaks 2017, so that was the follow-up to the 1990 series, and he showed that. And another thing, George, that you talked about earlier about this being a hologram and, and all that, but David Lynch dedicated an entire episode to the Trinity uh, atomic blast. Right. My takeaway when I watched that was, and you tell me if you agree or disagree, two things I thought of. One was that the chain reaction from the blast destroyed the reality that was there at the time, and then it had to be reconstructed through consciousness. Exactly, Michael. You take it right on. That's, you know what it's called? It's called quantum immortality. And uh, you have third believed in it so much he actually ate and drunk himself to death when he was done with his work laughing at his colleagues and his wife and kids yeah so consciousness recreated the reality but it didn't create it 100 percent. it wasn't an exact replica so we had some holes and we had some things missing right that's that's how i interpreted that well you see they're watching it on the screen it goes from three-dimensional to two-dimensional 
all this stuff is fact. This is not fantasy. I mean, go read the work of David Bone. Go read the, the work of Carl Friedman, who was a neurologist, a famous neurosurgeon. Yeah. He cut up a half a million monkeys. Uh, he couldn't find where consciousness was located in the brain. There is no consciousness. There is no seat of consciousness in the brain. We have a soul. We have a soul. It's just that simple. I mean, it's been weighed before, too, and it weighs 21 grams. That's where your consciousness is. And that, that part of you doesn't die. That's where these religions come up to soul is immoral. It's my thing against transhumanism. Machines are not going to have a soul. I don't care how much the egghead keeps trying to make it have a soul. It's not. It's not going to have consciousness. All a machine can do is calculate, and that's all it's ever going to be able to do. Yeah, it can't, it can't create. That's the thing, right? So it, it's, not a, it's not a sentient being. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, going back to Twin Peaks, because that re it really was fascinating, and it isn't for everybody. A lot of what David Lynch is presenting in Twin Peaks 2017 is going to go over a lot of people's heads. No, it's not for, it's not, it's not for you if you think that was tear gas that they were using the DC <laughs> the other time. It's not. Don't watch that. Watch a football game. Don't bother watching Twin Peaks 2017. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Be more your speed. But the other thing that uh, Lynch was showing us, um, the evil entity, Bob, coming through. and Like Bob. Right. So he was telling us that we opened a portal. Is that what he was telling us to let in this this evil? That, that's what I was interpreting that scene to mean. It's all interpretation. It's, I, I, I call it that, I call that like the Twin Peaks version of original sin. They couldn't cut the evil out of the world, recreate a world without evil. I mean, Bob had to come with it. You know, yeah. it was a package deal. That's how I took it. Yeah, and for those who haven't watched Twin Peaks, Bob is he is a representation of evil. Yeah, he's the devil. So that people probably listening to us and saying, who the hell is Bob? <laughs> That's <laughs> Bob is a good name for the devil. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> so that's who Bob is. What I wanted to do, though, George, was to talk about your book because, and let me just set this up a little bit. I read your manuscript going back a number of years ago when you were you know, still working on it, putting the maybe the finishing touches on it and trying to get the book published through major publishers, not self-publishing, which is what you had to wind up doing because the big publishing companies wouldn't touch it. I got, a, I got something in the preface about what happened with the Morgs Agency, which was the publisher I really wanted. They sent me back the manuscript at their own expense. In the package was a, an inter-office memo from like a, the Susan Clark was one of the big literary agents there to the legal office. Yeah. Confirming that they had gotten the manuscript. So obviously there was much talk about that manuscript among the, the uh, New York book publishers. The Morris Agency seemed very, uh, they were following some kind of protocol that they were affirming in, in their own offices about what to do when they got this manuscript. Uh, so after that, I kind of knew it wasn't going to get published. But it doesn't matter how many millions of hits, and I have millions of reads from all over the world, but they just keep erasing them and trying to marginalize me. I'm still here. I'm still standing. Going back to the publisher for a second, though, George, in the foreword, you mentioned that uh, the book was sent back to you with a letter. It wasn't supposed to be there, right? It was a letter that's, that showed that the book went through legal review. Right. The letter was by, I think somebody might have slipped it in there so I knew what was happening. Maybe somebody had pity on me or something. But no, the letter wasn't supposed to be. It was an inter-office memo from Susan Gluck to the legal department of the Morris Agency, which they want to make all the movies about books. 
Uh, and uh, they, they wanted to affirm that they had received the manuscript. I'll probably photocopy it and post it onto the Internet, but uh, I have to uh, I started writing for Open Salon. Um, I was pretty good at it, and uh, I, I started to make a lot of friends among the New York literati. All these guys were friends of mine. We were pen pals. We read each other's stuff. And they told me I was very good at writing. You know what? Let me write a book. And at first I was going to write a book about the 21st century working in the Cafe Royal. A lot of celebrities and stuff like that. Joe Papatone getting his hair piece pulled off in the VIP room. Drinking with Wes Saberhagen and all that. Stuff like that. I, I started thinking about it. And then this Gilgo Beach serial killer thing come out. You know, I was really worried about my daughter losing that lifestyle. And I got a phone call from a guy that I hadn't seen in 20 years. And this guy was in, uh, involved in all this 1989 stuff. And he starts telling me about a guy who committed suicide on the East End. So you can go look this up on the Internet. I'll say his name because it's on the Internet, Jimmy Bissett. Uh, he was one of the wealthiest people on Long Island. He called me in the morning. Couldn't have been 10 minutes after this guy killed himself. He left this long message on my mother's answering machine. She has an unlisted number. I don't know how they found any of this about suicide. And so I find out that yeah, this happened. And then I found out that the police had arrested this, guy, uh, this guy's father. And they had owned property all over Long Island. They owned the Riverhead Aquarium and stuff like that. And they were digging up pieces of his bodies they were finding at Gilgo Beach on the property. Now, news they ran something to that effect, and then they quickly cut it off and it was a disclaimer. But it was already out there, and people were talking about it among uh, Long Island's elitists. So I go to call him back two days later, and he says, Who's Jimmy Bissett? I never heard of Jimmy Bissett. I don't know Jimmy Bissett. I says, Oh. What happened here? You know, because I know what this guy just shut up, don't say anything else. And so then I started thinking about all the stuff in 1989 that we went through. And I seen stuff that was also, it was, you read the book, it's, it's stuff that's not supposed to happen, supernatural, if you want to call it, call it that. Yeah. I seen all kinds of phenomena and stuff then. I tried to forget about it, I really had. But this this kind of reminded me uh, of all this stuff, and it was like you know something that was on the back of my mind that, that came to the front again. And I started thinking about all of it. It's like, why don't I write a book about this? And and Preston Nichols, the guy who the progenitor of the Montauk Project, said, "Told me this was the Babylon working." Really didn't pay him much mind at the time. So I did as I went. And I talked to this guy, uh, my friend who had called me about the suicide, and he didn't want, to, want me to write the book at first, and then we started talking for a while, and uh, I convinced him, you know, we're getting old, let's just write, let's do this. You know, because uh, there's stuff about the animal horror and the inside stuff that they'll never tell you. You know, I, I'm sure he didn't want all that coming out, because uh, this guy did a lot of stuff, and it was all covered up for him. I mean, he was upper echelon. But, you know, he wanted me to write the book, so I did. And uh, unfortunately, he died as soon as it was finished, along with about eight or nine other people that were eyewitnesses, all the best friends I ever had. You had to convince him that to write the book, because I remember reading in your foreword that he was not receptive at first. No, he didn't want me to do it. Then he, he, then he kind of warmed up to it. Oh, yeah, and then he was calling me and telling me what to put in it and then all this other stuff. And I had to write around certain parts because, you know, he had made some admissions during it. I don't even want to talk about that. So I wrote the book, and I figured, you know, it's got it's got the real story of the Amityville Horror in it. It's got the real story of the Montauk Project in it. This is an instant bestseller. 
Uh, unbelievably, I couldn't get nobody to publish it. So I'm writing on the internet. Now I'm Jack Vaughn. I'm, I, I got viral posts. I got uh, people translating it into Arabic and stuff. And Nexus begging me for articles. Nexus Magazine and Duncan Rhodes writing me every other day. So uh, uh, Jerry Cannon, Dr. Colette Duell, uh, Jed West, the other guy. All these famous freaking people are all, all up my ass now. And I'm thinking maybe I should publish the book. But I didn't want to. Because, like, by now, I had met a lot of people on the Internet, and I talked to them on the phone. I don't know if I should even be calling them people, because uh, I'm telling you, we're not, we're not alone here. The human race is not alone. And uh, their overlords are not really human. Either they're not human or they are human, and they mean deals with, with, with entities uh, that yeah. are not human. For, for, uh, and, and people think it's about money. No, it's not about money. You think Bill Gates needs more money? If, uh, you think George Soros needs more money? Sheldon Allison? It's about an afterlife. They promise things in the afterlife. So I've talked to them on the phone. Actually, I've met people from the book now that's actually, you know, it's kind of laughed about. But I knew they really didn't want this book published. And I really didn't care at the time. But as time went on, I'm watching things like Stranger Things, which was originally supposed to be Project Montauk. I'm watching American Gods. They're plagiarizing stuff for the bottom, for the bottom, for the bottom. I need they, they changed the name of Stranger Things so I couldn't sue them, I think, to tell you the truth, because they originally supposed to be Project Montauk. So the last kicker is I'm sitting there, and I'm watching Legion. And they start Legion off. It's a series. So I think it was run on... Uh, HBO or SHO, I don't know which one it was. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime, but it's really good. But in any case, they start the series off with the song Happy Jack. You know, it's just, <laughs> you think you're funny now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Happy Jack from the boat. It's got nothing to do with anything either. And they end the series, that's three seasons long, and they end it with Happy Jack. And in between, they got this character, I think he's supposed to be David, and he's saying shit that I've said to certain people. Uh, I think you know who I'm talking about. And, and it's almost like mocking me. And I said, you know what? Now I'm going to publish the book. And that's where this came from. And I've gotten a lot of help. I've gotten a lot of help. Uh, I mean, uh, the guy Phil Hunter is the one who did most of the work on this. Uh, he's got 25 years' experience in military intelligence. I, I got another guy in, uh, in Washington in the woods. We call him Midget in the Woods at home in the woods. Uh, He's uh, he's a legend uh, uh, as far as uh, computer programming is concerned, uh, and uh, all these people helped me with it. How to format it, how to sell it, not to get caught in these traps. Like uh, uh, you'll publish your book on Amazon, and they'll give you the ISBN number, but not they own part of the rights of the book. You know, you got to get your own ISBN number. But do not let Amazon get their fingers on anything, because you will never see a dime. I knew one girl; she was a she was a famous pornography writer, Kiko Alvarez. And she's telling me, she's she, she get make $2,000, $3,000 on a book. You know, and, and, and she, she, she was very well known. I mean, her books were, uh, uh, you would think she was a millionaire. And she was making nothing because this is the deal. I know you know the same thing with the music. It's like, uh, here's one for you, 500 for me. Exactly. One for you. Yep. That That's how Amazon works. We figured out, I hope we figured out all, all, all the backdoors they have into in, in owning your material. And we, we shut them. And what we're doing is we're selling the book on, the, on their venues. I mean, it'll soon be available on Barnes & Nobles. So 
but they're just taking a percentage for selling it. I'm not. They're not getting anything out of that, and they don't own it. And if, if the contract is a 90-day contract with Amazon, goodbye, gone. You got no, no rights to anything on it. So they take some money for fulfilling and, and distributing the book, right? Shipping it out. Yeah, but they should be getting for selling it. Right. You know? Right. Uh, what they're doing when they give people ISBN numbers is they get the rights to the material now. Yeah. So you go have a movie made. It's an Amazon's your partner now. And they're not a good partner to have, you know. Like I said, one for you, five hundred for me. You know, that's that's their business model. That's how Jeff Bezos became the richest man in the world. He's not a nice guy. They're strangling artists. They're strangling artists. Yeah. They ruin music. They ruin literature. I don't know when we're going to put a stop to this. I really don't. Well, I told you, George, what they did to the music business, right? I mean, they yeah, yeah they eliminated albums, right? So now everything is streaming and and folks just so you know i've mentioned this on a couple of shows you know i'm an independent artist uh, musician and uh, you know i've got my music out you know you're going to make a penny for every four or five streams okay so think about how many streams you have to have in order to make anything tangible unbelievable unbelievable a penny a penny for every four or five streams a penny. How much did they make this? They got advertisements up on there. Uh, exactly. They, they've made a few million, and you made a hundred dollars. And, and this is okay. This is okay. This is not capitalism anymore either. So anybody thinks it's capitalism, you're on drugs. Yeah, I don't even like using the word capitalism. I like you know the free enterprise system. You know. Uh, you're probably right. Probably free enterprise is a better word than capitalism. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is uh, this is completely controlled. This is all you know. This is corporatism. That's what it is. It's corporate Bolshevism is what it is. Yeah, yeah. it's corporate Bolshevism. Right. And you know, even if they do everything all wrong, it's it's really Bolshevism, egalitarianism. Even if they fail and fall flat on their face, like the banks have countless times, the government subsidizes them. They could lose a billion dollars. The government gives it back to them. Well, here's an example for you that, that I, I throw out there. You know, before this whole CV thing, uh, we were told that professional sports, how important it was that fans buy tickets because they had to pay the salaries of the ball players and all this stuff, right? And when CV happened, right. the, the ballparks and the arenas cleared out. Now they have cardboard cutouts of people and fake crowd. Yeah, when you watch it, you're listening to a soundtrack of a crowd cheering. It's unbelievable, right? It's like watching the video game. But here's my question. I would cut out some fans. It's like like something out of a science fiction movie. I swear to God. It's so stupid that I I just can't even imagine how people sit there and soak this stuff up. I I really don't. It's mind-boggling. But here's my point. My point is... Well, what happened to all the money they needed to pay the ball players if there's nobody in the stands to buy tickets? So who's paying the bill? Who's paying the tab? The government's paying to have these fancy yes. stadiums. Subsidized. Jerry Jones in this Polyfield Stadium over in Dallas. Yeah. The government paid for that. Your tax dollars. Your tax dollars. Your government is subsidizing it because the government needs the bread and circuses in place. Right, bread and circuses. Exactly, exactly. They've, they've lost a lot of people, too, with that. I mean, uh, a lot of people don't follow sports anymore than they used to. Well, who cares about a guy who bounces an orange ball back and forth on a court when you have no job? Slamming each other down in a mud puddle. they got, like, 70 <laughs> IQs. And these guys used to come into the Cafe Royal, so you think they're tough guys? They're not. I see us and always bragging about what a gangster is. Like my friend Larry had him practice begging for his life in the bathroom of the Cafe Royal over a dancer. 
I mean, the guy was a total little girl. And he likes to brag about what a tough guy he is on TV. It's a joke. It's a joke. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in the book. Most of it takes place in the 1980s in your book. Am I right? It all takes place in 1989. It's something I was walked into, Michael. It's almost like a... I would say supernatural or something. Huh? I would have never got into it if I didn't get involved with Robert Rivera and end up catching a felony for filming uh, filming the this, this stuff that was going down with the cocaine with his brother Greg and him. So this is Geraldo Rivera from Channel 7 News in New York at the time. He was the biggest thing in news at the time. Uh, right. You remember, we had a big landscaping business, and uh, one of our clients was Dr. Frank Fields, who was the science editor of ABC. Yep. And he hooked me up with a lot of because I had quit smoking crack. And I'd seen what it did to people, and I was socially aware at the time, and I wanted to do something about it. So I contacted a lot of I knew it was coming in practically for nothing over at this black area called The Block in North Amityville. And uh, what they did is they went digging around, and they found out it was coming in. These guys in trench coats. It was like something like a, uh, what was, it was actually a continuation of the book Dark uh, Alliance with uh, the guy Gary Weber. I mean, they weren't just selling it in L.A. They were selling it in New York, too. And they had stumbled on the area where they were distributing it, which was, was, was this Chinese restaurant on the block. And, and Rebella filmed all this shit. And he told me, oh, it's going to be a one-hour special. You know, so He had this big special coming up about it. And then when it came on, it was about 10 minutes, and they didn't take any of the material, any of the footage we had. They never even mentioned the block to more them. And about a month later, I was accosted up there, because that's where I used to pick up half my labor. I used to shape up guys in the morning. And I was pulled over, and I was beaten up by the police. I was handcuffed, and I was tortured all night. They knocked out all my teeth. I still have no teeth. Matter. I was tagged with a felony, and uh, it changed my life. Uh, so I started, uh, you know, I, I, I started associating with these gangsters and stuff. I mean, I knew a lot of really tough guys, but I never really, I ran with them, you know, I had my own thing. And uh, I started associating with these gangsters, and I, I got into the top of sports. And there I am now, I'm in the, the Pagan's Motorcycle Gang's flagship clubs. They're uh, Gaslight and Bogarts. They're right across the street from Babylon Town Hall, and that's not a coincidence, because this was the Babylon working. And uh, I meet met this host of people. You have to read the book to believe it. Uh, and I'm still in touch with some of them still. Uh, I, I don't know what to say about them. I, I don't. I shouldn't say. I shouldn't say they're people, but because I don't really believe they are. We went through this thing uh, where I, I I saw things and did things, and according to the laws of physics and reality, they're impossible. You know, I'm a pretty level-headed person. I was there, and I seen it all, and you have my eyewitness account of all of it. Every word in that book is backed by municipal records. There are eyewitnesses still. I get letters from people in Amityville talking about the Amityville horror, and how did you know this, and how did you know about Kelsky? And I had because these were my friends, and I, I've shut my mouth. I shut my mouth about it for 50 years, but I know about it. I knew about it when, uh, when I was, by the time I was 18, that it was common knowledge, uh, that they're able to do things that they're not supposed to be able to do. And uh, my friend John was a very good uh, example of it. Uh, these guys on the internet want to talk about super souls. They were super souls. Dude, I'm looking at you. look like an accountant to me. These guys were really <laughs> super souls. Yet, I have pictures of these guys, like Jim and, and John. And, uh, John, he's a giant. Forget it. He moved like a cat. Uh, and there was like, four of Jimmy Murphy, 
one of these guys died after I wrote the book, too. Actually, two Murphy brothers died after I wrote the book. Uh, Gracie died. Uh, Gracie died after I wrote a published Peter Pan meets Pyramid Head. We had a fight about that on Facebook, because that's where they communicate in Facebook. Marlene is dead because she died after I wrote the book. Dawn, I, I, I just keep naming people. So these are all people that were in your within your inner circle back at the time. These were my best friends. I can attest to your life. You were connected to and ran with a very, very tough and rough crowd. Everybody knows. Like, everybody knows. Like I said, go ask Michael Francesi. You know, he's a stand-up guy. In The Sopranos, there's a guy named George Esposito. And that, that comes from a time when I snubbed The Sopranos at a mafia funeral. You know, like they wanted me to introduce me to these people. And I was like, these people are walking, talking slow to Italian-American. I don't want to meet them. Then after that, there was a new character on The Sopranos, George Esposito. He's in Worcester. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, every, everybody knows who I am. That's why I said this. Everything that's in that book is background. Municipal records, eyewitnesses. I did not publish anything. If I got to embellish it, I won't write it. I feel that a writer's job is to tell the truth, be brutally honest. Say what you really think. And, and that's what I did in the book. I, you know, I talked about sexual proclivities and stuff like that. None of it was to make myself into a freaking hero. I, I really don't need to do that. I, I wanted to go into the human mind. I, and when I wrote the book, I, did, I had no idea the rabbit hole went anywhere near as deep as it did. I mean, I got the guy that's running the NSA calling me up uh, every day after that. But in any case... Uh, I was just trying to write a psychological bestseller. It turns out that this is the secret origin of the Nazis, and I didn't know any of that. And so uh, uh, this famous athlete, I, I befriended on the internet, he was a big fan of mine, and uh, he told me to read Miguel Serrano. And uh, I started reading, Miguel Serrano, by the way, was probably the most powerful man in the 50s and 60s on, in, on the planet. And you want to know why you can't go to the Antarctic except to take pictures of penguins? Miguel Serrano was the reason. He writes all about this religion, the union between Lucifer and Lilith, the union, sacred union, uh, the union between sun and the moon. And this, this is what the SS, or the inner orders of national socialism, were striving for. Uh, they, it had nothing to do with the Christian religion. It had far more to do with the... Uh, Parsable like Wagner and stuff like that. They go back to the uh, to the uh, bards and the uh, the guys who used to uh, go around uh, singing these poems in the 13th and 12th century. There's stuff about the visitation from the goddess Ishtar, and that's that's where they got the name uh, the Black Stone or the Guardians of the Black Stone. That's what that's really means. Uh, Schwarzenstein or something like that, uh, but it's, it means Black Stone. How important was Crowley to all of this? Him and Otto Ron are the spiritual leaders of National Socialism. I'm still not sure that if we're living in an alternate reality generates artificially generated reality, we're not living in an Alistair Crowley spell. He actually wrote in 1933 uh, for the London Dispatch Times. He went back to London to settle lawsuits and, uh, and he bragged. He said, uh, you know, they got the swastika because I was born with uh, hairs on my chest and shaped swastika. And he said, before Hitler was, I am. Well, it was, I, I'm the guy who's, uh, who's really in charge of national socialism. And this is borne out in the writings of uh, Miguel Serrano, even though he criticizes Crowley. But then he says there were secret masters of the SS, and he produces the picture, and you see Crowley's bald head. 
standing in the middle. So uh, you know, I don't know if that went by him. But in any case, after Crowley wrote that, they were horrified. And uh, they kind of like, uh, he, he was under house arrest after that, after 1933. A lot of what's said about him was from that guy, Grant. I, 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 him, I think, was an OSS agent. And uh, they got a lot of his manuscripts and stuff like that. They turned it into uh, the Temple of Set and Satanism and stuff like that. The Aquino guy and... I think he would have been appalled with the Temple of Set, but his whole idea was uh, the, the revenge of Horus against Set. But in any case, after 1933, he wasn't allowed to travel. I mean, he was under house arrest. They tell you that Hess parachuted into Germany. That was the Sikh rally. And uh, this is what Ian Fleming, the guy, the creator of James Bond, if you, if you can look this up on the internet, he told them, you know, he's here to see Crowley. Why don't we just put them both together and see what happens? When they, when they picked Hess up, he was talking about the occult. They, nobody knew what he was talking about. And uh, Fleming was like the head agent, the head agent of the OSS. He says, well, he's here to see Alistair Crowley. And uh, he wanted to put them both together, but the British Admiralty vetoed that because they said it would be too dangerous. So, uh, yeah, Crowley's at the bottom of the whole thing. During this stuff that happened in 1989, they kept telling me about Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley, you know. You know, there's really no such thing as God. They made all that stuff up. The people who run the world, they believe he was God. You know, all this stuff was borne out later on when I started doing my research as Jack Hart. I thought it was all true. Afterwards, I wrote all this stuff. I did all the research. I have guys like O'Reilly. He's the guy when you looked at the German films, the, 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 the Messerschmitt fighter planes and the, the tanks clashing. He's the guy who digs through the German archives uh, for the uh, History Channel, and he got tired of doing that stuff because it was it was so slanted that he actually went back to Germany. He volunteered to be my researcher, and these are the kind of researchers I have. I have people that are like top intelligence agents. I get mailed stuff you wouldn't believe the stuff I've read. I've had quite the education in the last eight years since I wrote that book. Uh, I, I didn't know the stuff I know now. I mean, the, the shit really hit the fan, so to say, in, in 2016 when they uh, they started stepping out of the shadows and introducing themselves to me. Hey, now you you mentioned uh, Borman before. Isn't wasn't George H. W. Bush connected into the Borman faction? You mean the ships? Well, that's that's the Bush's real name, supposedly. It's the ships. There's a picture of them all sitting together, Michael, on top of the Borman faction. But uh, Squazini's there, Doctor Mingua. Borman. I saw that picture, yeah. What I've heard is that Bush's father, H.W.'s father, was Nikolai Tulsa's assistant, and that they ended up with a lot of uh, his research and stuff, or patented it. Uh, so that was uh, that's something I've heard. I have no proof of any of that stuff. I have no proof that they're really the ships either, which is why I never say it in writing. Uh, other researchers have said it, and they're adamant about it. They just suddenly appeared at the beginning of the 20th century. They just worked their way into the highest echelons of American society. I know one thing about the Bushes. H.W.'s wife, Barbara, was, uh, Barbara's, uh, H.W.'s wife, right? That, that's Alistair Crowley's illegitimate daughter. That's the Moonchild that he wrote about in the yeah. Moonchild. All five of the Bush siblings are Crowley's grandchildren, uh, which is why Ozzy Osbourne was invited to the White House after he taught Mr. Crowley tell you about the song. Mr. Crowley is uh, think like, uh, oh, well, because I used to think this too. Uh, he says, well, would you ride my white horse like saying, like he's saying, blow me. That's not what he's saying. It's not a derogatory thing at all. The white, the white horse is what the 
the German savior is supposed to ride. Uh, you'll, you'll see in, in Lynch's uh, 2017, yeah. when he cuts to the uh, Beyond the Curtain. The, the white, white horse. horse. Right. The white horse. There's something called the cannon link. Now, they eliminated, as I was researching this, I saw Wikipedia links going down as I was going to. They never took the cannon link down. And the cannon link traces her, her, uh, her exploits with Alistair Crowley. And then she came back with the baby. And uh, it's pretty obvious that it's Crowley's baby. And that was both a bush. And you can just look at that. And you can see that she looks just like Alistair Crowley. Well, the tip-off, too, was when Ozzy went to the White House and George Bush Jr. said, you know, Mom really likes your stuff. Right. That's what, like I said, like people listen to that song and it's like they think, oh, no, he's criticizing. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's saying he's the same to you, idiot. You don't know nothing about his. You know, why don't you ride my white horse like he's telling Balmy or something. But uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, because the white horse, it shows up in, uh, in Twin Peaks. David Lynch uh, presents it. Right. Well, the white horse is supposed to be ridden by the uh, Messiah. you got to get into Serrano to read this. Uh, the 13th guy in the round table wages war against the Demiurge. Uh, they'll arrive on a white horse, a Vermana. White horse is the symbol for the Vermana, which is the foreign source. And he calls for an intergalactic war. And uh, supposedly Serrano met with Hitler after World War II in the Antarctic. After Operation Hijab, which was an encroachment on the Schwaben land, which the Germans had taken over in the Antarctic, and it was repelled, and uh, the uh, Operation Hijab suffered heavy losses, which were covered up, and uh, they met these flying sources. And it, uh, ever since then, then, then Serrano goes there the next year, supposedly talked now about Hitler, and uh, they came up with these laws uh, that you can't have anything military in the Antarctic. You can have scientific observation from this, but I don't think you're even allowed to have an assault rifle. And it's very tightly monitored. Let me tell you something. You're not going to the Antarctic unless Jet Propulsion Laboratory says you can. Yeah, so figure that one out. If you're going to the Antarctic, you've got to get their approval. Supposedly, they're doing research on other worlds, but we all know what that is, so... George, let me ask you a question about just stepping back a little bit, back to Long Island in, in 1989. Now, you know, a lot of people, they have no comprehension of the types of experiences that you have had. You've had a very, very colorful life. And, you know, you interacted with people that most people would never even come close to in their life. The whole strip club business on Long Island, people go there, they drink, they put money down, they watch the ladies and all that stuff. But... What what I mean? What is it really like? Who's controlling all of that? Because people think you know, people don't think in terms of that. They just they have no understanding of what the real control mechanisms are in our reality. During the uh, late eighties, they reached the pinnacle. It was being controlled by mostly by the bikers. The pagans were really running it, but the mafia had their hands out too. Uh, Above that, like the girls had a lot of control too, particularly the girls I talk about. They had just as much control, they had control over the bikers, which made they had just as much control as the Italians did. It was a, it's actually a self-perpetuating entity at the time. Uh, we didn't have porn stars and stuff in the late 80s and early, uh, uh, that didn't come until around the 2000s. Uh, and it was like a, a like you said, the guys would just go there to drink, and they would get rowdy, and they would stomp on the table, on the floor, and bang the tables, and 
you get crowds of hundreds of people on the bar with standing room only, and uh, and these girls were like rock stars. Uh, that, that now, now they they don't even get paid on the drawer. Then they got paid nineteen dollars an hour, twenty one dollars an hour plus tips. Uh, there was an envelope that went uh, in the cash register, and the agent picked it up at the end of the day. They all worked for an agency. It was APP Talent Agency at the time. We ended up taking over that, too. Uh, and actually, we ruined the industry. We were told that the, they were going to, like the, the Italians, were going to create a, a union for the girls and all of a sudden they were going to get benefits. That's not what happened. What happened is they took away their uh, hourly wage. They took away any union they had, which was what the agency really was, was a union for them. And that now these girls, they have to pay, uh, you know, some, some clubs $120 uh, just, just to work there. And, of course, you know, they, they chisel money out of guys all night, you know. But it's it's, it's much different than it was. Yeah, a lot of these girls now, you, you know, they, they, first of all, they don't have the looks of these other girls. These girls were all professionals. They were very aware that their looks was everything, and they wanted to keep them. Uh, a lot of the stuff they pull, like they do a lap dance, and they, they end up trying to extort you $300 for a lap dance. That didn't go on back then. None of that stuff went on. I, I hate to call pornography good, clean fun, but it was more like good, clean fun back then than it is now. I, I, Hey, now, I wouldn't be caught dead in I really wouldn't. But in your book, you, you describe some pretty good uh, encounters with other gangs and stuff like that where it really got it really got down and nasty. There was fights. It just didn't seem like it could really happen, and it did. There was a one incident where I, I swear to God, like, I beat up 40 guys uh, by myself, practically, and it was, it was like Samson beating up the Philistines with the jaw of an ass. I don't even know how I did it. I, I mean, I'm pretty tough. <laughs> I'm not that tough. This was a freaking miracle. This this was a supernatural event, and it really was. Anybody seen it and was there knew it. Yeah. Now you mentioned in the book that your 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 ex wife and and if you don't want to talk about this, just let me know. But there was a, a moment where you said that her hair had stood up and there were blue sparks. Stood up straight up, straight up. First time it happened, a few strands stood up, and then more and more kept until got to the point where a quarter of her hair, and she had hair down to her ass, would stand straight up in the air, like something out of a uh, young Frankenstein or something, and you could see little blue electric sparks flying back and forth in the hair. Now I came to find out that this is how the real girls communicated with the uh, other entities. Uh, I didn't know that when I wrote it. I, I didn't even know what the real girls were. Uh, the real girls were uh, a faction of the uh, National Socialist Party. Not really didn't say they were a faction because uh, I don't think Maria Rastos was never down with any any of uh, National Socialism. It was more like the religion. But they were a faction that actually uh, they actually channeled information from ancient Sumerian gods and demons, and this is how the Germans attained a lot of their technology. They were directly with uh, Otto Schumann, who, you know, you may have heard of the Schumann Residence. It's named after him. Now, Schumann was the guy who was detained the longest. They brought him to Wright-Patterson, locked him up for two years, debriefed him, along with all these, these, these papers that they came from uh, to him about, uh, you know, afterlife machines, flying sources. It's a matter of public record, too. Tons and tons of papers they shipped into Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And they shipped out of Schumann, and then they debriefed them for two years. 
But he was working directly with these real girls. And they had the long hair, and they would channel these, these entities, and uh, they would do automatic writing. And then Schumann was there with a team of, because uh, the Germans were the best at, uh, at translating this, this writing. They had the uh, Pan-Babylonian movement. They had a lot of uh, guys that knew more about cuneiform than we know today. And they translated it all. And that's that's how the Germans supposedly attained some of this technology that was hundreds of years in advance of ours. And uh, this this thing with the book, I, I wrote it. I, I I'd never even heard of the real girls when I wrote it. And I came to find out that this is what they were doing. What about Preston Nichols? Because you knew Preston Nichols as well, and you had uh, some conversations with him. And I knew him better than Peter Moon did. Let's put it that way. Uh, I knew Preston Nichols really well. I spent a lot of time. Upstairs at Total Health, uh, we had these offices and stuff, and uh, we would talk for hours. And he told me a lot of stuff about, a lot of his stuff goes back again to the Nazis. Uh, and Alistair Crowley, and uh, what they were trying to do with the Babylon working, and uh, how they split the timeline. And uh, there's two different timelines. There's the timeline we live in, uh, which is kind of like the antithesis of... Uh, Man in a High Castle, if they've ever heard of that. Uh, it's uh, a series by a famous uh, science fiction writer. Uh, I forget his name. But uh, it's about if Germany and Japan had won the war and uh, everybody's living in this ultimate, this reality where, uh, you know, uh, the Nazis have taken over the world along with the Japanese and they're about ready to have a war with each other. But we live in the opposite of that. We live in the reality where the Allies won, the capitalists won, not even the capitalists, the aristocracy won, the Kodabi Kalziri plan won, from predatory money lenders. This is what the Germans fought against. Uh, the international monetary system, predatory money lenders. Now they take a lot of flack because they were anti Semitic. But all these bankers were Jewish. I mean, read Carol Quigley. They also helped set up Israel. Okay, so let's if we go back to Preston Nichols for a second. So you're saying that Preston Nichols was explaining that there's two timelines? Yes, yeah. I actually published one of the last things he did was uh, a little video, music video, where uh, he's sitting there in his house all by himself, eating his cheese, and uh, there's a knock on the door, and it's him. And they sit down, and his other hand is showing him uh, the schematics on the drawing about how it works. I had had incidents with him where, you know, I had went to to uh, this place where the Brookhaven lab was testing people, and he happened to be the guy that was testing people for the Brookhaven lab. And when you asked him about it, he never remembered it. He said he didn't remember it. I, I don't know how much of... Uh, what he was saying was true or not. But the science that he starts talking about in the Montauk projects really didn't come out until after the 90s. Uh, uh, I mean, what he's calling wave list. I mean, that's the science of Gabor and wave coals and stuff like that, what non-particle physics. Where there was really no such thing as particles. That's uh, the made-for-TV science. Uh, what the government uses in black ops and stuff is wave-only physics. That's what... Uh, that's what Schrodinger believed in. That's what Von Neumann believed in. That's what you ever the third wrote his ground paper breaking paper on that the wave function the wave function doesn't break down. And after he wrote that when he was slim, maybe twenty one years old, uh, everything he did after that became deep black. Uh, and uh new to this 
today cannot find out what the body of work he did uh, really was. And but the many worlds theory, when they are, you know, oh, there's an infinite amount of worlds. That's you ever to third. That's you ever to third. There's infinite worlds. For each world, is they give a good explanation of an illusion. Yeah, they take all my stuff in Legion and they do very good with it. But I, I, I didn't particularly like the part where I'm crying that I deserve love. I, you know, that's not me. I, I'm not a crybaby and I, I'm not schizophrenic now. Uh, and I don't question myself that I'm schizophrenic either. But I've seen it seen. It really happened. Unfortunately, it really happened, but it did. I've had a lot of paranormal experiences in my life too, going back to when I was a kid, you know. So. Yeah, that's why when I read the book, I'm very open-minded because, you know, I, I remember going back and experiencing paranormal events, and, you know, then being told, well, it, you know, it's just your imagination or that's not what you saw. Or, <laughs> like, well, what are you talking about? I know what I saw. Mike, when I was a kid, I was terrified. I, I mean, I, I'm scarred from the day one. The shit I used to see in my room, and they told me, it's a shadow on the wall. It was a tree. And, you know, I woke up one day and I thought there was a dwarf at the foot of my bed. And it was dancing around weedy shit, like in a circle. And, and I watched it. I sat there and watched that hood over its head. I, I must have been about six or, six or seven, maybe. I, I just waited until I got like an opening. And it went to the far end of the room. I jumped out of the bed and ran on my parents' room. I, I wouldn't sleep in that room. And then they, they, they made me go back in it. Hey, I ended up waking up with my collarbone broken on the floor, and the door wouldn't go in there, and voices coming out of it. I'd sit in bed, and I'd hear scratching on the pillow from inside the pillow, and all that stuff I had to go, and then they made me go in that room every night, every night. The little dwarf, was he like the guy in the red room in Twin Peaks? (laughs) You know, I have to have been psychologically scarred by that, you know? Uh, Yeah. That's that was my life growing up, and it, it stopped. Thank when I was around ten or eleven years old, it stopped with a dream I, I related in my book. Yeah. It, it stopped, and then I, you know I forgot all about it. It became shadows on the walls and trees. And, you know you don't think about it again, and uh, I, I didn't believe in any of this stuff. I was a total materialistic atheist uh, until I was like twenty three, twenty four, and then they. Went to East Iceland, which is where much of the Montauk projects really took place. And that's what Preston Nichols admitted to me. Uh, they had a place over uh, right by Hatcher State Park, which was a, a Grumman and Fairchild joint laboratory. And it was off of, located off of Sunrise Highway. And if there was any chair, it was probably right there. And I seen all kinds of occult phenomena, and I was never the same after that. I was just like, I was like the guy who's been dragged out of Plato's cave, and you know, you can't go back. You see the stuff, and it was like I was always looking for explanations. I read a book about aliens. I read all about magic. I read all about occult phenomena, but none of it seemed to fit. Yeah. By uh, the time I was twenty-eight, twenty-nine. All the chickens came home to roost, and I went to the book, the, uh, what I relate in the book, the experience I relate in the book, which spanned about two years, from 1988 to uh, 1989. And I forgot about it after that, too, again. Uh, and, uh, you know, because it's not something you really want to live with. Right, that's right. I had forgotten about it until, like I said, in the uh, preface of the author's with the 
2011 when I got that phone call from my friend. Uh, I have a feeling they were planning on killing my daughter. Uh, I think that was the crux of the matter. Because I find out that uh, the friend who was meeting at the lunch when he killed himself was good friends with my daughter. And my wife, actually, my ex-wife, had a close over his house. So, uh, yeah, I think I think maybe uh, that, you know, somebody said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to tell you. Uh, that's, that's what ended up happening. And that's why I got that phone call. And... Uh, that's when that's when I, I remembered everything, and I was like, well, "Are you going to write about the, you know, Cafe Royal? And you can write about this." The the obstacle was, you know, there was real people really died. In the Cafe Royal, nobody died. It was like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. That would have been a comedy book, you know. Uh, but in 1989, there was dead bodies turning up all over the place, and uh, well, John died as soon as the book was done. That's pretty convenient, huh? Because most of that shit can get traced right back to him. And I never seen nobody. I never seen nobody. Interesting. Interesting. So right after you finished up the book, he disappeared. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping everybody reads this book, Michael, because you know what? Welcome to the real world. The guy writes me a long letter. A very famous writer, okay? Famous writer on political discipline. Writes me a long letter. He says, I email. He says, the news is something we make up every day. It's for the undermans. It's like that daily dose of opiates, morphine, because they need this dose of pain and sorrow and suffering, or they're not happy. And they wanted me to write this stuff, too, to make shit up and write it. And I was like, no, we shouldn't do that. Then I go back. I, you know, I read, this was like a three-page email. And I go back, and I keep going and reread it. And it's in my sent messages, and that was a paragraph, and everything was edited out of there. And this was in 2013. I know they have this technology now, but supposedly they didn't have it then. But that was the first thing I was told. The news is something we make up. It's it's for the undermenshits. It's the daily dose of pain and suffering. And that's exactly how they look at it. The occult, like you're doing all that stuff with the numbers now and stuff like that. Yeah. This this is what really moves them. It's it's not money, man. They're not stupid. They know they live seventy or eighty years and die. That 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 and they can't take their money with them. They're looking. They're building afterlives, man. That's what they're doing. And they're making they're making deals with disembodied entities. And there's a war going on. There's a war going on between two different different factions, multidimensional beings, and one. Would be a good thing if they won, and one that would be a very bad thing if one won. Good and evil is probably a child's concept, but uh, yeah, right and wrong isn't. Right and wrong isn't. And the the ones that are running things now, they're all wrong. The stuff they do is all wrong. Just look at them. Just look at the world they've created. No, it's absolutely right, George. I mean, you know, just take a look around, and they want you to believe that there's, you know, there's like a hundred shades of gray. But, you know, look, you know, the truth is the truth. The truth is, it's a binary switch. It's either on or off. Exactly. And if you can't discern between what is clearly right and what is clearly wrong, then your mind is contaminated. I mean, as, as human beings, we know the difference between right and wrong. We're born knowing yeah. the difference between right and wrong. You know, it's called a conscience. It's called a conscience. And we all have one. Some of us, some of us kill it, kill that conscience and in its early stages. And they go on to become the sociopaths and the psychopaths that are running this world right now. Well, some, some people believe the buck stops uh, in the White House. I mean, these people are very, very naive. 
Well, they need to read a quote by Woodrow Wilson made in, uh, after uh, he got the federal oh, yeah. reserve crammed up his butt uh, about this, these people who rule the world and you can't yep. say anything about them. You know the quote I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah. I presented it a few videos ago. I put it in there again. That was back in 1913. Right. Yeah. Right. So the president didn't run the world back then. What makes you think he runs the world now? Yeah. It hasn't gotten better, folks. Yeah. It's gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. <laughs> well George I, we're going to have to wrap up and this has been a great conversation very free flowing and I just uh, folks the book is Those Who Would Arouse Leviathan it's taken from a biblical passage in, in, in the book of Job where the demon that the Abrahamists call God boasts nobody is so fierce that they would dare arouse Leviathan I'm reading the book now as we speak and it's very, very good. I'm going to catch up with you again soon. It was a pleasure, and uh, I'll, I'm going to have the show out as fast as I can. It will definitely go up on Patreon, and then it will be up on BitChute. I will put a trailer on YouTube because I'm absolutely positive YouTube will not keep the uh, the show up. So, Yeah, I'll put it up, too. I'll put it up. Uh, we got our own website now, to jackheart.org. Yep, you know? I saw that. But your stuff is going to go up on there, and uh, Fitzgerald and Gould, there's a select group of people that are working with. Okay, yeah, appreciate that. Thank you for everything, Dan. You're very welcome. And that concludes another Sage Quay interview, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Links to my guests' websites and social media are listed in the description box below. And as always, I would like to thank everyone for listening and visiting the blog. You can find all my social media and web links by visiting my hub website at sageofquay.com. Also, if you get a moment, please visit laboroflovemusic.com to check out my music and album releases. And remember, live in truth and always serve creation. It's really that simple. See everyone with the next show. Be safe, enjoy, and God bless. the love